to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Let's go into God's Word this morning. I want to start uh, from the book of Galatians, chapter 4 and verse 4. Book of Galatians, chapter 4 and verse 4. Open your Bible, turn on your iPhone, your iPad, your Samsung, your LG. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4. The Bible says, And when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law. But when the time had fully come, underline uh, that phrase, we'll spend some time here this morning before we move along. But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, from under the law. Now, the word time in the Greek word is the word, the word kairos. Now, if you've been a believer long enough, you would have known that there are two Greek words for time, right? The first Greek word is what? Come on, help me preach. Chronos. All right, so you've got, uh, now it's about 1050. That's the chronos time. It's 1050. Tomorrow is Monday. That's chronos. But there's another word in Greek for time, the word is kairos, and the word kairos means an opportune moment, an opportune moment. And then the Bible says when the time when kairos had fully come, the phrase had fully come, is a very descriptive Greek expression. It speaks of something that is complete and fully developed, like a ripe apple ready to be picked, or like a pregnant woman feeling labor pains ready to, to, be, to deliver her baby. It describes the moment in history, my friends, when all things were in place, when all the pieces were on the board, that one moment when the stage was perfectly set. And the Bible tells us at that very moment, at that kairos time, not earlier, not later, God sent forth His Son. The stage was fully prepared. So, the first Christmas was God's kairos time. Now, you have to understand that years have gone by since the fall of men, that the whole creation, especially God's chosen race, were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. There were prophecies and promises made. But see, God's timing is always perfect. He's never early, but He's never late. And sometimes God's timing staggers us. We wonder, God, all the promises you've made for our lives, when are they coming to pass? All the prophetic words that you have over my life, we talked about them last Sunday, over Joseph's life, that he would rule. But he had to go through the prison, the pit. He has got to go through trials. But at the fullness of time, he was elevated to become the prime minister of Egypt. We, we spoke about Moses Yet for 40 years, he was doing nothing but to uh, take care of a bunch of stubborn sheep. But when the time had fully come, the Bible tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the burning bush. And that began uh, his lifelong ministry of leading the children of, of Israel out from uh, slavery into the promised land. Amen. When David, who received the promise of kingship at, a 17, uh, at 17 years old, and yet he waited for 13 years, but when the time had fully come, when the kairos moment had fully come, and so some of us, I sense in my spirit, are waiting for your kairos time. You have got promises, you have got prophecies over your life, but I want to guarantee you, God is seldom early, but He will never be late. 
Your promise, the prophecy will come to pass because from the story of Christmas, we know that nothing is impossible for the Lord. Amen. Amen. See, the Jews who wondered, like all of us, about the promised Messiah, from the very beginning of time, God promised to send His Son. Going all the way back to the garden, God promised that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, who is Satan. That's found in, in uh, the first book of the Bible, in the book of, of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. But yet Adam and, and Eve didn't know and couldn't have known, my friends, that the phrase seed of the woman was a direct prediction of the coming of Christ. But that was the first time that the birth of Jesus was prophesied. And of course, centuries later, God promised Abraham that he would have a son, and that through his son and his descendants, all the earth would be blessed. That's found in the book of Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to verse 3. And generations later, the promise was made more specific, that a scepter or kingship would arise in Judah. That's found in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, meaning that Christ would be born of the tribe of Judah. And hundreds of years later, God promised David that one day he would have a son to sit on the throne whose reign would be everlasting. That's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 to verse 16. And, that, and then the promise narrows from Adam to Abraham to the tribe of Judah to the house of David. And later the prophet Micah declared that the Messiah would be born in a little village called Bethlehem. Are you following me? You're tracking that, you know, from the whole of the human race. Now it's getting more and more narrow. And finally, Daniel, not me, but the prophet Daniel, was given divine insight into the exact time frame when Christ would come to the earth, found in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Friends, these are only just eight prophecies. And all that was written in the Old Testament and much more that I have not mentioned and the Jews knew this, and even though they didn't understand fully all the prophetic words, they couldn't put all, everything together, yet there was a great desire for the coming of the Messiah who would deliver them from slavery, from the tyranny of sin, and they were longing, they were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Now, I said last Sunday that the word Advent means coming. So, we're celebrating this season where the earth then was awaiting for the first coming of Jesus. But likewise, the rest of the church today is yearning for the second return of Jesus Christ. Amen? There's a sense of expectation. But as I said, the first coming of Jesus, I think, was one of the greatest, if not the greatest miracle for every prophecy to be fulfilled in one person. is almost close to impossible. If not, it's impossible. I want to just do a quick test. All right, I need some volunteers here. Can I have uh, 10 people on this side? All right, to stand to your feet, please. And we've got space this morning because people are traveling. So I need 10. Stand to your feet and maybe just come to, to the front. 10. Come on, okay, I'll, I'll point. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and Clement, 10. All right, just come to the front. All right, I'll need uh, someone who knows them. Say, Ephraim, come and help me. All right, uh, great. I need to mingle, uh, to, to mingle. All right, just mingle and eat, uh, eat. just line, line yourself up and just, all right, and form one straight line. 
Ephraim, close your eye. And I want to prove to you how impossible it is for all the promises about the Messiah to be fulfilled in one person. And I'm sure you've heard this before, but just let me illustrate to you. All right, I want you, okay, you just take a look first. Look at them. Do you know every one of them? Okay, later, they will rearrange themselves, and I want you to pick out Shan. All right, so close your eyes, and uh, from one to, like, where is she in the order of uh, this ar- arrangement? Okay, so close your eyes, please. That's, now she's num- uh, number four, right? So let's move, ar- move around, and once you're, you are done. Okay. Just form one straight line. Okay, from one to ten. Make a choice. Uh, seven. <laughs> 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 You're right. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's do it one more time. <laughs> now, this is just one in ten. Okay? Okay, just do it one more time. Close your eyes. Look for Shan. Mix and mingle. Form one straight line. Okay, you've got, you got five seconds to do that. It doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to mix and mingle and form a straight line. Come on, church. All right, one to ten. Find Shan. Ten. Ten is Christopher. All right, one more time. Just one more time. Mix and mingle and form one straight line and find Shan. All right, they're done. Eight. Eight is Melina. No. All right, so the point is, those of you who have gone through statistics class, you have learned probability, all right? So the probability of Ephraim finding Shan in 10 people randomly, it's one in what? One in 10. And of course, one in 10 is not impossible because he did... Uh, got once correct, yes? All right, so please go back. But, you know, um, a group of students were asked to look through all the prophecies and to find eight of those prophecies and with all the factors, all right, that were involved, you know, for just eight of those prophecies to be fulfilled in one man and to, and to find the probability. So what are the factors? For example, in those days, there might be 10 million people in the world. So 10 million. All right? And then uh, the different cities and towns and uh, the probability of just eight of those prophecies, the geography, the population growth, blah, 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 all, in, uh, all considered the factors. And just to have eight of those prophecies to be fulfilled in one person. Guess what's the probability? It's not one in, in eight, all right? Because you have got all these random unknown factors, but they were just looking through and sifting through. It took them weeks to do that, and it came up to one person fulfilling eight prophecies is one to ten to the power of 17. Just eight prophecies. All right, so imagine to find Shan. You know, in, uh, I can't even, to 17, how many million people, to just identify Shan, for, for Ephraim to say, uh, she's number 1 million and 800 and uh, 300, uh, three and, and 3, all right? Something like that. To find Shan. 
That's just eight prophecies. And then they went on, they do a little, little bit more research and to find the probability of one person fulfilling just 48 of those prophecies, of those promises, the chances are 10 to the power of 157. Do you know what that means? That there are 157 zeros behind. I, I mean, it's impossible. Now, just let me help you understand how impossible that is. Just look at eight prophecies. Now, that, that, that big number, one in 10 to the power of 17. I was reading something and uh, this professor who was doing this research was saying that the chances is like you have got silver coins, right? 10 to the power of 17 silver coins could actually fill the whole state of Texas. Now, even though Texas is huge, those of you from, from the U.S., huge, two and a half feet deep, right? Silver coins. The number of silver coins is 10 to the power of 17. Could fill the whole state of Texas two and a half feet deep. All right, before you do that, and you, and, and you mark one of those silver coins, you throw it uh, into this sea of silver coins, the chances of you picking that mark coin is 1 to 10 to the power of 17. That's how impossible. And so eight prophecies is that, and then the probability of fulfilling 48 is one chance in 10 to the power of 157. Uh, it's impossible. But the Bible shows us, if you look at the Scriptures, that there are more than 300 prophecies concerning Jesus. 300 prophecies and for all 300 prophecies to be fulfilled in one person, in Jesus Christ, is impossible. In fact, statistician tells us that the probability of 1 to 10 to the power of 150 is close to impossible. It's, it's, it's no longer possible that the chances of you fulfilling that is impossible. Which is why Professor Stoner, the professor who was doing this research, make this statement. He says, any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact, not just a theory. Because Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies put together. How do you plan it? How do you plan for a man to be born in the household of uh, David in the city of Bethlehem? How do you plan for his betrayal? How do you plan for him to die with two thieves on the cross? And worse still, the, 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 the typical way to crucify a person was to break the person's leg. But yet, the Bible promised in Psalms that the Savior's leg will not be broken. I mean, the chances of his late not being, not, not, not being broken is impossible. I mean, all these prophecies in one person. Which is why I'm saying, friends, that anyone who rejects Christ, the Son of God, is, reject, is rejecting a fact, prove perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. Professor Stoner, who is uh, the Professor Emeritus of Mathematics and Astronomy in Pasadena City College. It's a fact for, you, for us to reject Christ is to reject a fact like gravity. If I throw every one of you up, you will fall unless you've got a turbocharger for you to you know, just soar into the heavenlies. But otherwise, we will all fall. What goes up must come down. It's a reality, it's a fact. Likewise, to reject Christ with all this proof, friends, is to reject the fact. The birth of Jesus is one of the greatest miracles in the world. And yet the Bible tells us Christ has come to us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. So with that as a background, I want to 
just challenge all of us who are believers here and perhaps some of us who are seeking God. What do you do with this miracle? When Christ comes to you, what's your response? Because you and I know that not everyone would receive this fact or would receive this miracle. And in the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 2, we read of a man who rejected this fact, who, re- who rejected Christ. We read of a man who when he knew that Christ was born, actually wanted to kill him. This man is Herod. So let's learn a few lessons from Herod's life and apply that in this Advent season. What do you do with Christ? Knowing that He is real, knowing that you have experienced Him, knowing that some of us who sang we were the reason, we were 15, 17 years old, and He came powerfully into our lives. What would you do with Christ this morning? I believe there are three lessons we can learn. Let's, let's go to lesson number one. I believe the first lesson we can learn when Christ shows up in your life is that there can only be one king. Make him your king. Make him your king. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 3. Let's read that on the screen, please. After Jesus was born, the greatest miracle in Bethlehem was prophesied in the scriptures. During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star. The Kairos moment is now. We, we knew that the Messiah is born when it rose and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. He was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. See friends, Herod was called then the king of the Jews. And before we can understand this point, let me give you a quick background to Herod's life. Now, Herod wasn't from the chosen tribe. He wasn't from the tribe of Judah. In fact, he wasn't even from the lineage of Jacob. He was an Edomite, which means that his uh, forefather was Esau. So he was in no position to actually be ruling over God's chosen people. In fact, as historians trace his background, his family and relatives were politically connected to the Roman political system of those days. At at one point, his father was accused in conspiring against Caesar. When this was found out, his father was executed in front of his son. Herod actually saw his father's execution. He saw all the corruptions happening around him and these events messed him up. And because he was involved in the political system of those days, he tried to pull strings and got himself appointed by the Roman government to the position of the king of the Jews. Do you know that? Interesting, isn't it? Imagine all the insecurities dwelling within him when he heard that Jesus was born and this was the, prof- and this was the promised Messiah. It threatened his position. It drove him crazy. And all these insecurities started coming out again. He tried to take away Christ in Christmas. The first lesson we learn from this story is when Christ shows up, make him your king. When we look at Herod's life, we learn, friends, that he's not really a king. The king in Herod's life was power, politics, and position. He wanted his power. He, he wanted to be king. 
I mean, if he's really interested in the Jewish people, he will be celebrating the fact that this promised Messiah has come, that this is the Kairos moment, the fullness of time, that Jesus has come to deliver the world of sin and he would embrace him. Wouldn't you, if you're really a king of the Jews, if you are in a position to care for millions of Jewish people and you know, which is why the Magi came because they saw the star and these weren't even Jews. They were just, they were just mathematicians, astronomers. And they understood that Jesus Christ was born and this is the Kairos moment. But when they presented this fact to Herod, Herod wanted to kill Jesus. Because the king in Herod's life was power, politics, and position. For some of us, it might be the, the same. We call ourselves believers, we call ourselves Christians, but yet we crave for power. We're political. In church, in our work, we will do everything to hold on to our position, to be in control. We, we hide our, our insecurities. We call that the survival of the fittest. We're pushing ourselves to the front by, by pushing other people backwards. We backmouth. That's Herod. We try to kill others so that we can be secure in our place of power. Now, that's Herod's king. That's his idol. That's what he has been enthroning in his life. But for some of us, it could be money, could be fortune, could be status. We want to be popular. For some youngsters here, it could be the looks that you will do everything to look good. You will spend money on cream. You, know, you will save up to go for surgery so that we can have more likes on Facebook. Now, friends, listen. I, we all have kings in our lives that we must dethrone this morning knowing that Christ has come to be king. Amen? You will know who's the king in your life by asking yourself a question, who is controlling you? The, the, the number of likes on Instagram controls you. If you post a photo and it's 10 likes less than your usual post, oh, oh no, I've got to think of ways. Young people? Oh, this is bonus season, right, for some of us. And you get lesser bonus than previous years. Oh, I, 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 I want to change job. Reviews from your bosses. And you know that you have been trying your best, but you are living to please men. Kings in our lives. For some could be career, ranks, social standing. My friends, this morning, as Christ shows up, the greatest miracle ever, the promised Messiah, the fullness of time coming into our lives, we have to make a decision, my, my friends, to make Him our King. See, I read a story recently of King Canute. Uh, That's how I found out the, the name was pronounced. Not Canuti, but Canute. Was once ruler of England. The members of his court were continually full of flattery. And they would come to King Canute and they would say, You are the greatest man that ever lived. You are the most powerful king of, of all. Your highness, there is nothing you cannot do. Nothing in the world dares to disobey you. And every time they see King Canute, they would flatter him and they would fall on their face and say, you're the greatest, you're the most powerful. Nothing is impossible for you, King. And King was a wise man and he grew tired of such foolish speeches. So one day, as he was walking by the seashore, King Canute decided to teach them a lesson. And so he said to his followers, so you say I'm the greatest man in the world? He asked them, 
Oh, king, they cried. There never has been anyone as mighty as you, and that there will never be anyone so great ever again. And they were again just rehearsing their speech. And you say, all things obey me, Canut asked. And they say, yes, my Lord. They said, the world bows before you and gives you honor. Everything in the world will obey you. The king said, I see. In that case, bring me my chair and place them down by the water. The servants scrambled to carry Canute's royal chair over the sands and at his direction, they placed it right at the water's edge. The king sat down and looked out at the, the ocean. I noticed the tide is coming in. And he asked, do you think I was, it will stop if I give the command? And they all cry out, the whole entourage, give the command, sir, oh great king, it will obey you. And so, Canute said, See, I command you to come no further. Do not dare touch my chair. He waited a moment, and a wave rushed up the sand and lapped at his feet. How dare you, Canute shouted. Ocean, turn back now. I have ordered you to retreat before me, and now you must obey me. Go back. In came another wave lapping at the king's feet. Canute remained on his throne throughout the day, screaming at the waves to stop. Yet in they came anyway, until the seat at the throne was covered with water. And finally, Canute turned to his entourage and said, It seems I don't have quite so much power as you would have me believe. Perhaps now you will remember that there's only one king who is all-powerful. And it is he who rules the sea and holds the ocean in the hollow of his hand. I suggest you reserve your praises for him. Here we have a king who understands that even though he sits in the royal throne and he has got power over an empire, yet he acknowledges that there is only one king who is the king of all kings, who is all-powerful. Reserve your praises him. Likewise, my friends, in our lives, we think that by having more resources, more money in the bank, more status, more titles behind our name, more letters behind our name, PhD, MD, whatever, that we will have power, prestige, position. But friends, I'm here to tell you that it is not true that there is only one king. Reserve your praises. Reserve the throne of your heart for him. Amen. Reserve the throne of your heart for him. Which is why the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9 to 11, For this reason also, God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Friends, God highly exalted Jesus. And yet we go on through life thinking that we are exalted, not God. We believe that we could control our lives, our future by having things, by having position and power like Herod, thinking that he could control his kingdom. He could be secure as king of the Jews. And yet, my friends, we hold on to our pride, our achievements, our trophies and things in our lives, not relinquish them to God. And this morning, the greatest miracle has come to us. Our response is to yield to Him. Is to, uh, if not, we miss the things that God gives us, the miracles that God wants to bring into our lives. You know, I, 
like a, I, like, I like a quote by Adrian Rogers, a former Baptist pastor who has passed on, and he said these words. He says, this is the essence of kingdom authority. Fathers can have no authority in the home. Fathers can have no authority in the home unless they have surrendered to the headship of Jesus. Mothers cannot pray with authority for their children when they have no submissive spirit to their own husbands. Pastors cannot lead, teach, or preach with anointing or supernatural power without being fully broken and surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, the authority of the Word and the commands of the Spirit. The essence of kingdom authority is when we acknowledge Christ's kingship in our lives. It's when we embrace Him as our Lord, our King. It's when we make Him ruler over everything that we have. Make Him our King. Make Him our King. Amen? First response. You want true success? It's when we step aside and say, God, you lead. We try to control. Singaporeans are control freak. We want to be in charge over our own lives. You can't control me. I've got my rights. Friends, there's no such things for believers as human rights. You can't fight for your right with the Lord. You can only do one thing, release and surrender and say, God, you are king over my life. Choose for me. We, we are taught to say that prayer, my friends. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, he's a great father, but he's not a sugar daddy. Our dad is also a king. And in the kingdom, he has got his own set of boundaries. And our responsibility as believers is to say, Father, let thy kingdom come into my life. Let your will be done. I release control. The person I'm to marry is not what I want. It's who do you want me to marry? The job I want to go for, my career path, is not what I am, what I am passionate about, what I want. It's God, what do you have in store for my life? The kind of church we want to build is not what I want, but God, what kind of church do you want us to build? See, as we acknowledge His Lordship, that's when we gain true control by releasing it. You know, I find for a long time my life was out of control because I'm, su I'm su such a man pleaser. I, I want to make sure that people like me because I've got I in my DISC profile. All right? Some of you may know this. I don't want to make that into a truth. You know, but those of us with I in our DISC profile, we want people to like us. And so I'll pack my schedule back to back and, and, I'll, and I'll look at my phone all the time and oh I've got to leave now I've meet someone else and it's just going from one appointment to another appointment wanting to just please people that I'm available I'm this great pastor who is caring for the people and I'm there to meet every need I'll pray for you and I'll do all that but I was losing control of my life I, I, I just thought well I can't and I feel burnt out tired and the best decision I've made two years ago was you know what I'll release control and I'll get someone to help me manage my life. And so the team then said, okay, I'll get you a PA. And now I can say no to appointments, talk to so-and-so. And in losing control, I gain control of my life. I can show up and be the best Daniel Troy as I can be. And people are blessed. The point here is this. You want the miracle to happen in your life, lose control of your life and make Him Lord. Give Him the utmost 
position in your life. Enthrone Him. Amen. The second lesson we can learn from this story is Matthew chapter 2, verse 4 to verse 8. From Herod's life, let's read these verses. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, the Kairos moment. All right, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you will find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, what hypocrisy. Herod was pretending. He said, if you find the king, let me know so I can go and worship him. But you know the end of the story. He was out to kill Jesus. The second point we learn from this story is pursue him yourself. Don't send someone else to find Jesus. If you're really passionate, if you really are interested in your miracle, pursue it yourself. Pursue him yourself. It wasn't Herod's intent to find even Jesus face to face. Amen. Did Herod really want to find this child? Not really. If you contrast what the king Herod did with the shepherds and the magi in the Christmas story, you see the difference. In Luke chapter 2, it mentions that the scene when the shepherds found Jesus, they all broke out in praise. They fell on their faces, acknowledging that hope has come. Likewise, when the Magi realized that the stars have a lie and that this is the Kairos moment, they went searching for the stars, searching for the Messiah. I'm here to tell you, church, don't rely on others to pursue Jesus Christ for you. Pursue Jesus yourself. Pursue Jesus yourself. You can't depend on your cell group leader to pursue Christ for you. You can't de depend on your mother to pursue Christ for you. You can't de uh, depend on your wife to pursue Jesus for you. You can't lean on their faith and their spirituality. No, pursue Jesus. From this Christmas story, I want to encourage all of us, and as a church as well, let's not depend on just the worship team pursuing Jesus for, for us. All of us pursue Jesus ourselves. In the, in the time of worship, there's only one audience and the band's not here to uh, entertain us by the, uh, by the groove and you know, by the guitar leaks and by how wonderfully arranged the music is. It's not a time of entertainment. It's a time of worship where collectively we're pursuing Him, not leaving that pursuit to someone else. Young people, don't leave it to your leaders. Someone asked me recently, will you give spiritual direction to people? I said, no, I don't. Because I don't believe that God has got grandchildren. All of us here, God, I said I'll pray along with you. I'll share my wisdom, my insights. But all of us are supposed to hear God ourselves. If not, five years later, you'll come back to me and say, Daniel, give me the wrong direction. You mess up my life. I can't take responsibility for your future. I'm not the know-it-all pastor who will just... Pray and whom and God downloads his prophecy and I'll give you a prophetic word. This is your husband. No! And that whole thing about the prophetic ministry, can I say, is a little bit out of line. Amen. 
My sheep hears my voice. You are God's sheep. There's only one shepherd. I'm, I'm just your fellow brother that can come alongside to share my wisdom, to explain to you what I've learned in life and hopefully that will help steer you in your pursuit of God. But friends, I can't pursue God for you. You have to pursue God on your own. You have to go after Him with your whole heart. As I said at the start of the service, the only thing that makes the church different from any social gathering is the presence of God. And how much of God we have in this place? Now, please know me. I'm not talking about uh, God's here all the time. Yes, He is. But how much of that concentrated glory we want depends on us? I was thinking through this thing as I reflect on my life in 2015. So one thing that has always been very important, but all we like sheep, we go astray. So at times, we, we get distracted as life happens to us. But the presence of God is utmost in my life. I, I, I love His presence. I want His presence. I want the worship to be full of glory. I want the worship to, uh, to send us crying, you know, to make us go on our knees and wanting more. And that's the sort of church we want to have. Amen? Do I have a crowd here? Amen? Isn't that the kind of church or you, you just come and can't wait for the service to end, have a cup of coffee and talk about uh, your life last week? Is that... No, that's not what we want. We can have that. But why we gather is we want the presence. We want to encounter the presence. We want to, we want to meet Jesus face to face. When you walk out from this room, you wouldn't talk about how amazing Andre's sermon is, how charismatic Daniel is, how passionate so-and-so is. But you will just leave this place talking about how wonderful Jesus is, how real He is. Oh, I heard His voice. Oh, I feel His touch. Oh, I sense His presence. And this church is all about that. It's all about that. I was reading Joshua's life. And Joshua, of course, was the successor to Moses. And do you know why he was chosen? It wasn't because he was a great general. There were strong generals, powerful leaders in the days of Moses. Why was Joshua chosen? I think the clue can be found in Exodus chapter 33 and verses 7 to 11. It says, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Why the tent of meeting? That's his quiet time. Are you with me? That's his prayer closet. He brought the tent with him and he goes into the tent and there God would come and that's where he encountered the presence of God of the Lord. And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tent, watching Moses until he entered the tent. So there's a group of people here that just simply admire the tent. They admire Moses' spiritual life. They love the fact that Moses is encountering God, that he's, that, that he's receiving revelations about the Ten Commandments and he had revelations of the creation because if we believe that he wrote the Pentateuch, that he wrote the book of, of Genesis, then who else would know how the whole world was formed but Moses receiving it through revelations. And so the followers, the Israelites were amazed and they loved the fact that the leader is encountering God but they were all just watching they were just watching and the next verse says, As Moses went to tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. 
Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance, they, they all stood to worship, each at the entrance of their own tent. But no one went nearer. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And Moses would return to, to the camp. But here, we've got one young man. His young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Why was Joshua chosen to be Moses' successor? Because Joshua was hungry for the presence. Long after Moses left, long after the rest of Israel go back to their own habitation, their own house, their own home, there was young Joshua walking around that tent of meeting, observing it, examining it, and wondering what is so special with this tent that in this place Moses had all these revelations? In this place Moses was, an, an, was encountering God. And why did the pillar of cloud descend on that place of meeting? And he was just observing. He lingered around the presence. He lingered where God, where God's concentrated glory was. And he was hungry for the presence. And I believe that's why he was chosen. And God promised Joshua when he was installed as the leader. He says, the same way I was with Moses, I shall be with you. And that's the reason why Joshua had the confidence to lead three million people to cross the Jordan into the promised land. Not his own battle experience, but the presence of God and the promise that God will be with him. So friends, as a church, let's not just observe someone else's spiritual life and say, wow, that guy is amazing. The revelations, the truth. You looked at so-and-so and say, wow, that guy is so close to the Lord. May their lives provoke us. May their life encourage us, inspire us to be like Joshua. Walk around them, look at them and say, why do you know God like that? Why are you in such close communion? Why when I come into your presence that I feel like crying? Why when I... Why when I speak to you, I feel like I love God a little bit more? Why when I talk to you, I can't talk about everyday life challenges, but oh, I'm just so caught up with this love relationship with Jesus. Have you met people like that? That when you try to talk to them about the latest trend, the popular song, somehow you can't because you would just go into this zone where nothing else matters except wow, have you known the Lord? How amazing He is. It was with Bill Johnson. And Andre can tell you that he's a very quiet man. Right? He can be with you alone over breakfast. And so I was with him in uh, Jakarta, having breakfast with Bill. Uh, our friend Cheyenne has gone back to the room to prepare, so just two of us. And uh, I'm taught in Asia that it's very rude if we don't talk, right? So I try to strike up conversations, you know, just like, oh, so how's uh, Brian, you know, that, 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 that. And, you know, he seemed a little bit, yeah, he would just talk a little bit. But then I asked him, so how do you, uh, you've got this 30 years, people thought that Bethel arose overnight, but no one knew the prophetic history of Bethel, what you've done. You know, have you ever thought of writing a book about the preparation, the things that have gone in? And I was asking him these questions, and he came alive. And he gave me a half an hour sermon. And he was just talking. <laughs> he was telling me what was happening, and I love it. it. It drew me closer. He inspired me to have my own history with God. 
Do you have own history with God? Pursue Him yourself. And as a church, let's pursue Him. In 2016, let's make His presence our utmost passion, pursuit. In worship, go hard after Him. Amen. It's all by grace. I know that. But grace empowers us to run further, to jump higher, to lift our hands longer. Amen. To meet Him face down. Deeper, deeper still, higher still, further. The grace of God enables us to know Him. Enoch was another man who walked with God faithfully. And there, there came a time when he was just walking after his son was, was born. The Bible tells us that he walked faithfully with the Lord. He was walking and walking and walking. And he just stepped over a line and ta-da, he appeared in the presence of the Lord. Enoch didn't die. Right, let's read this verse. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God and he was no more because God took him away. I can just imagine Enoch, because you have to remember that our relationship with God is called a walk. It started in the garden. The Bible says that God would come and walk with Adam in the cool of the evening like he always did until the time when the fall happened, men hid themselves and God looked for men and said, where are you men? So it was a habit. It was part of the routine. It was part of their, their life where they would walk with God and God would then tell them about things and his creation, his kingdom probably. And so likewise, Enoch was walking with God. It's like walking, walking, walking. His son was born, the family I'm sure was busy, but yet he walked faithfully. He didn't allow things to distract, not even his children, their studies, not even uh, their education or not even the marriage, the wife. He was walking faithfully, not, not his career, his farm or his animals. Yeah, these are all very important, but Enoch walked faithfully with the Lord. Things were still happening. He needs to go, he needs to eat like all of us. He needs to, to decide you know, what to, to do with the kids like all of us. Yet in all these, he didn't allow things and the blessings of God to distract him. He was walking with the Lord and one day he crossed the threshold and he was no more. Ta-da! His wife said, where's Enoch? His kids said, where's dad? I got no idea what happened after that, but Enoch walked with God. He crossed over a threshold. He was no more. Why? Because he loved the presence of God. He was pursuing God himself. Don't be like Herod, church. Don't be like the King Herod who sent the Magi and said, when you find him, let me know. It's a bit like when you have a truth, tell me. If you have a revelation, share with me. All right. What's the, you know, give me a summary of uh, what you have learned this week in our Bible study and you know, I'll digest it. That's not what God has planned for us. Amen? Are you still with me? The joy of knowing Him. I miss talking to people, exchanging the latest truths and revelations that we learn. And may we have more of that in the coming days. Amen. God can't resist a, a hungry church. He shows up when we earnestly seek Him. Pursue Him. Last but not least, the third lesson we can learn is allow Jesus to grow up in our lives. I love that. Allow Jesus to grow up. Christ is in you for those of us who are Christians. The seed, you have heard the seed, receive Christ into your life. You have heard uh, the gospel, the seed has been planted in your heart. But the seed must grow up before it can bear fruit. 
The story goes in Matthew chapter two, uh, 2, verse 16. And when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. See, Herod didn't want Jesus to grow up in his life. He was afraid of the changes that he would do to his life. And sometimes, like Herod, we didn't want Christ to grow up in our lives because of the changes we have to go through, because of the decisions that we've got to make, the sacrifices we've got to offer. And yet, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, therefore, and I think this is a word for some of us here, therefore, let's move beyond the elementary teachings about Jesus Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, let us move on. No, let, let us move on, move forward to maturity. And the writer of Hebrews, whom I believe is Paul, was actually telling his readers, hey, it's time for you to move on to maturity. Writing to believers, there's a deeper place in God. There's more you can know. There, there's more growth that can happen in your life. Stop revisiting the foundation. Repentance, baptism, faith. These are all very wonderful, but I think there is more in God that we can experience. Move on to maturity. Don't have to revisit your foundation. How many times? When was the last time we go down to this building look at the foundation? No. Long, I've not done that since we moved in here. Your apartment, your condominium, your house, do you... Oh, the foundation is still fine. The foundation is important, but it's not what makes the house beautiful. Amen? We have to grow and learn what God wants us to learn. There are three stages, at least, of spiritual growth. We've just come to a close. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 13, the Bible tells us that there are three classes. Next verse, please. It says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. There's one more verse. I'm writing to you, children. <laughs> there are three stages, children, young men, and fathers. In the parable of the sower, we are reminded that a good seed, when it grows, will produce fruit 34 60-fold and a hundred-fold. The Bible talks about three different kinds of diet. To little babes, children, he said, receive the milk. It's good for you, help you grow. But how long can you drink milk? It's time for us to mature and grow up to start eating bread. There's bread God wants to share and break with us so that it, so it, it nourishes our soul. But yet, there's to come to a time where we can receive the meat of the Word. And there are teachings and doctrines that easily we can digest. Now, these are all wonderful. Bread, milk, bread. It's good. But we have to go beyond that. And sometimes meat is hard to chew and hard to swallow, but meat satisfies you, especially some of the men here. You can't wait to sink your teeth into a good chunk of steak. Oh, and you chew it and you say it's juicy, it's nice. You, and you have to keep on chewing it, not just gobble out. Because steak, you have to chew for you to enjoy milk, you just gulp and it goes into you to give you the protein that you need. What am I talking about? 
Some of us are so resistant to receiving teachings or preaching that sometimes challenges us that we need to chew and we need to just think about them, wrestle with the scriptures. But this is what satisfies us, my friends. Time for us to grow. It's time for us to grow up. The Bible talks about three levels of fruitfulness. We, we can bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. John chapter 15. See, even though you're a children, you need to eat, you can still bear some fruit, but that's not where, not where God wants you to stop. Allow Jesus to grow up in you. Amen. Allow Christ to be fully formed. That's a verse in Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, where Paul says, I travail until Christ is fully formed in you. Amen. The seed of Christ is inside. The miracle of Christmas is living inside you. But this morning, I want to encourage all of us. Allow the Christ to grow up in you so that He and you become so united as one that you talk like he, he does, you think like He does, you minister like He does. And friends, that's God's goal for the believer. Maturity. Some of you might think that, kind of Ben, that, that all there is to, to the Christian life is heaven. Right? I'll just go to where He is and there there'll be no more sorrow, no more tears. And that's true. But can I say that in this life that there is more that you can experience of God that the ministry that He has in store for you now, you have heard me say this, that there is no, that as far as I'm concerned, there's no secular and sacred uh, divide that all of us are ministers. And God can use you to do a lot more. But we have got to allow Christ to grow up. Amen. In you. You start thinking like Him, acting like Him, serving like Him, loving like Him, and Christ being fully formed. See, Herod was afraid that Christ would grow up. But when Christ grows up in you, that's when you'll see fruit, impact, change lives. And it's a joy to behold, my friends. So, as I close, the birth of Jesus is the greatest miracle. As I've said, all the prophecies, more than 300, for it to fulfill in one man, is impossible. And yet it happened 2,000 years ago on Christmas night. It's a miracle. And that miracle has come into our lives. All of us here, we are product of the reason why God gave His Son. When I was singing that song again, we were the reason. Again, I find myself tearing because I was brought back to 13 years old. I was in uh, the school hall and there I was as a, as a non-believer, listening to the song for the first time with tears welling up in my eyes. And I wondered why. I wasn't even, even a believer. In fact, I was against the gospel. I didn't like it, but knowing that someone would pay a price for me, that wrecked me. I was tearing. That miracle has come to live inside of us. But what should we do? Number one, we need to make Him king this morning. Is He king in your life? Number two, we need to pursue Him ourselves. Number three, He must grow up inside us. He must grow up. What's my challenge to this church? As we end this year, go into a brand new year. Let's decide. Make some decisions. This morning, I'll make Him king. He wants to be king, not just over your vocation, but also over your emotions for some of us. Some of us, our emotions are so 
messed up. And we allow our emotions to reign over us. We make decisions based on feelings. God says, no, I want to have reign. I want to rule over your emotions. I want your emotions to grow up. I want your emotions to be mature. I want to rule over that. Amen. Have you, have, have you thought of that? I was just thinking about this message and I said, God, come and be king, not just over what I do, my food, my uh, finances, but also over me, my emotions, my feelings, the way I treat people, the way I talk to people, have, have lordship over my words, have lordship over my conversations, every area of my life, come and be king. Make a decision also, pursue him. Don't live off second-hand revelation. I've heard people say that, oh, I choose this church or that church because, oh, I get fed in that church. I understand what you are saying, that you are blessed by the messages, but I hope that you are not saying that you are not feeding yourself. I hope that you are enjoying your daily time with God, that there is feeding that's happening directly from the Holy Spirit to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't grow. You will not grow. You are living off someone else's second-hand truth. It's like I eat, I, di- I digest, I vomit out at you, you know, every Sunday. Ah, this is what I've learned. And then you lap it all up. Ah, your vomit is so tasty, Daniel. Whoa, so delicious. And you live from vomit. I know, it's, I, I, I know it looks graphic, but that's exactly what a lot of us are doing. We're, we are not feeding ourselves. Ah. Amen. Can I say that the fivefold ministry is not to teach you? This is what the Bible says. That God has raised us, some of us up to be teachers to equip the church to teach. The goal of the pulpit ministry is so that all of us can become teachers, not so that you can be taught. Hello? The role of an evangelist is so that all of us can evangelize, not so that you can have souls worn by this superstar evangelist. The role of the pastor who's here to serve and shepherd the people is so that we can equip everyone to be pastors. The more we, the, the more we understand the fivefold ministry, the stronger the church becomes. So pursue God yourself. Amen? Last but not least, let Him grow up. Commit yourself to growth. Amen? Commit yourself to uh, moving beyond just being little child to young men to become fathers. There are many... There are many instructors, but so few fathers. Can we have a a few more fathers in this church who will say, I'll take responsibility for the young? Because at this point, a few of us are the bottlenecks. If I I don't do it, nothing gets done. But what if all of us rise up and say, you know what, our father, the young, our father, the new believers, our father will be a very strong church. Amen? So let's all stand to our feet. Hope has come. The greatest miracle is living inside us. And we want to grow. Father, we want to we pursue your presence. We want to make you king.